Hello and welcome to Hope for the Introvert. If you've ever wondered how an introvert temperament can be compatible with leadership, then you're in the right place. Join us as we chat with introverts who are leaders and influencers in their various fields. They talk about the challenges they face, as well as the ways they feel their temperament has contributed to their success. Our host is Ben Welk, an introverted leader himself, working as a programme manager in the Information Security Office at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He's also leader of the Society for Technical Communication and a member of the EDUCALS Higher Education Information Security Council Awareness and Training Working Group. You can contact Ben at ben at hopefortheintrovert.com or on Twitter at Hope Introvert. Support Hope for the Introvert on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash hopefortheintrovert. Joining us today is Ashita Grover. Ashita is the Director of Marketing at Cisco and contributed to the STC Intercom May-June 2018 article, The Introvert in the Workplace, Becoming an Influencer and Leader. You can contact Ashita at ashita at icloud.com or on LinkedIn, Ashita Grover. I encourage our listeners to visit hopefortheintrovert.com, where you'll find complete show notes, including a transcript of today's conversation. Hi, Ashita. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Hope for the Introvert podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at Cisco and what your workplace is like? Sure. I've been at Cisco for 14 years and always been in the technical communications function. The key aspect of our of my job has been producing user-facing content for the data center products at Cisco. And it's been a really fun ride and lots of learning. Over the past 14 years, I can say with 100% confidence that there's never been a dull moment. I get an opportunity to interface with a lot of cross-functional teams all the way from engineering to marketing and sales and even customer support. That kind of summarizes my job role and my presence in the landscape that I'm, that I'm in in this company. Okay. What's the actual workplace like? Is it, uh, I have no idea if it's an open office, whether you have your own office, what it's like working at Cisco. So we do have an open space or open environment, as they call it. There are no cubes, there are no offices, even our vice presidents and senior vice presidents sit in in the open workspace environment, which is challenging. I've been in this environment for almost two years and it, it still feels difficult because it's you're out in the open <laughs> all the time and you really don't have much space to to sort of be yourself or be in your zone, as I call it. In my current setup, I sit with my team of writers and on the other side of the floor, we have a large group of engineers and 
surprisingly, I, I noticed that there's a lot of similarity in the ways engineers and technical writers work. There is that sense of, I want to just focus on what I'm doing. And often people are focused on their monitors and watching what they're doing. Now, interestingly, on the opposite side of the floor, there is a marketing team. And we are in the middle of in engineering and marketing. That's, that's kind of how we are situated. And there's quite a bit of, bit of chatter. There's quite a bit of talk. A lot of phone conversations with customers, potential sales channels, etc. That's how we are physically situated here um, in my current setup. So are there issues with noise level and things like that? Yes, it takes a lot. It takes adjustment. Most of, mostly everyone has their headphones on and they're trying to just focus on, on what they're doing. There is the, even though some people are particular enough that when they have a private conversation, they will take it out, uh, they'll go into a, uh, into a private room. But many a times people are not conscious of it and they start their conversation with their spouse or with their child while everyone else can listen. And that certainly causes a certain amount of hindrance for the rest of us. Yeah, it's interesting. I had I don't remember the name of the article, but I'd read an article about a study where there was a class and part of what they were doing was kind of seeing what the perceptions were of private space and public space and how surprised the people doing the students doing the research were about how people don't seem almost assume privacy mm -hmm. they're in conversations and if you go sit in an airport or a large room you can hear people talking about pretty much anything sharing credit card numbers sharing personal information it's really surprising in a lot of ways but i don't know it's very strange i don't know whether fact that we have headphones on and knowing that we're the only person that can hear the other person, whether I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where the thinking is on that. <laughs> it's actually in line of the question you asked me about, you know, how we are situated. My team of uh, technical writers actually reports into marketing in this in in the business unit that I work for at Cisco and traditionally or more often than not we've seen technical writing teams reporting into engineering or engineering operations but this setup is kind of unique and i personally think from a functional perspective it serves us serves us far better because the content we produce is is um, we are we are in closer proximity with the people who actually read our content and use it, but from a personality perspective, I think writers on the team still have a bit of a hard time trying to figure out how to even how to level set or how to strike a conversation or even try to understand marketing perspectives. 
it's not a question of alignment. It's more a question of how you approach your jobs. So what do you see as the main difference there? Traditionally, technical writers have been very inward focused. The goal being, okay, you know, here's your piece, you go write it. And once you've written it, one of your SMEs is going to review it. And that's the last time you, you'll uh, update the content. And then you really don't get an opportunity to talk to someone who's actually using the content. But when we are, now that I am part of a marketing organization, we get constant feedback from our customers who are reading our content and, and voicing their opinion and voicing their concerns about what is it that they need from us. But this is, again, something that is not, that writers are just not familiar with. It, it catches them off guard. There is that general tendency of, how, you know, how come this is happening? There's that question mark that, oh my gosh, why did this come to me now? And I have realized that it's not a, it's not a result of the fact that they don't want to, to improve. I think it's just the fact that it's a different environment. It's new. It's a different way of doing things. That is where the mindset shift comes in. And mindset shift takes time. It does not happen overnight. Now, was this the same alignment before you went to the open floor plan type workspace? Yes, it was. This alignment happened about four years ago. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think because I kind of wear both hats because I always have a communication role of translating my technical content to a non-technical audience, or at least one that's not so versed in the jargon. So for me, I'm used to that, but I haven't done software documentation or hardware documentation type work in a really, Mm -hmm. really long time. Almost everything has been, what is this going to mean for the end user? So that part makes a lot of sense to me, but it's such a different, skill set, I think, and mm-hmm. or it can be a different skill set between being used to working with engineers as subject matter experts compared to working with marketing people. And part of what you're referencing, marketing people, from what you're saying, seem to be more outgoing than either the engineers or the technical communication group. Definitely. and. The sheer fact that marketing brings a more customer-oriented perspective is also is new, it's different, it's a different way of thinking for technical writers who are more, more comfortable in the traditional way of doing things. When you think about it, being part of marketing suddenly puts technical writing in the forefront of the food, it it puts you in the front of the food chain versus at the very bottom. And suddenly you are, you are the first customer facing team who's looking at the product in terms of how it's designed and also how it's going to be used. And this is truly where you are going to be expected to play the role of, you know, of the, you're the, you're the user's advocate and, and all those wonderful phrases that describe technical writing. Many a times I catch my writers and I will point out that 
we don't need to explain to the user how a feature has been designed or how it's been coded. What they really need to know is how to use it. And then there's that sudden realization that, oh, I was speaking to an engineer and the engineer just told me how they had coded the feature, not really how it's going to be used. So that gives you another perspective. And that's where marketing comes in and says that, hey, wait a minute, you need to think about it from a user's perspective. So the whole concept of sometimes and this is this is another point i've made with my writers is that i have come to a realization that we've been doing our jobs wrong maybe or maybe we were missing the mark because we have relied on engineers to give us feedback for our content but the the product is not really going to be used by an engineer or really the user doesn't really care about how the product was designed. What they need to know is how do you, how do I use the product? Right. So what might been have been very handy in terms of if it was a software thing, a system administrator's guide where they may need to know a lot more detail. Correct. The audience is, again, which is supposed to be anyway, but the audience mm-hmm. is really the key determinant in terms of what content you're going to share and how you're going to share it. Correct. Yeah, it's I can well imagine the engineers going very much in depth about something they're very passionate about. But for the person who's going to use the product, like you said, it may just be totally irrelevant. It may not be something they'll ever do. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, there was a really, and I'm sure you're familiar with this book, but there was a, I think it was Alan Cooper's book on about the inmates being in charge of the asylum. And (laughs) it talked about engineering driving features and products. And part of his discussion was how you kept getting, oh, well, let's add that. We can do that. Let's add this. So I can have it do that without necessarily looking at the usability side of it or whether those features were something that anyone would even want to use. Yeah, that's very true. So it's an interesting read. It's yeah, it's been several years since I looked at it, but some of these things just don't change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So sounds like an interesting structure that you're in there. I've Yes, and I, I really do think that you know, if you are wired to understand your user's way of doing things and you're interested in how they're going to actually use the product, I couldn't think of a better place to be in as opposed to where I am at right now. Interestingly, recently I I attended a couple of sessions related to customer journey mapping of our product. And it was quite an eye-opening experience because in high-tech, companies create these products and, and they start to ship them and they start to sell them. And very rarely, even today, is not much importance is given to usability or let's vet the product enough before it's made generally available. 
that's one one aspect of the story. The other aspect of the story is the product is really powerful. It comes with a great brand on it. You know, it come, comes with a great brand name. And, you know, there's credibility associated with the product. We definitely need to invest in this. And that's where the big decision makers come in and put a stake in the ground. And the decision is made for people who have to ramp up from ground zero, learn how to use the product. And that is where the content that my team creates comes in, is, is front and center. And that's where the value add comes in. Right. And it's a, and it's a very competitive marketplace. So you constantly have that you've got you some ways you have to get it to market or you may miss the opportunity completely exactly yeah i recently watched a show on i was on it's on netflix it was an a and e program to start with called halt and catch fire and it had to do with the beginnings of the computer personal computing industry and it goes forward a decade or so after that but the whole race to get something to market first. And if someone mm-hmm. beats you there first, whether it be a portable computer at the time when they were such rare things or Yahoo getting their search engine embedded into Mozilla. It's kind of like, well, they got the market share because they got there first. So I understand the tension, mm-hmm. but I guess part of the brand name thing is that people will expect the company to stand behind it and work through, you know, whatever the issues are and make the improvements. Definitely an interesting space in which to work. So mm-hmm. we connected initially because I guess you were at LavaCon and you had done a fairly short presentation about yeah. introverts and leadership. And we connected after that. And, you know, we've chatted quite a bit, really, over the years. So I'd like to get an idea now. So you're a marketing director. You're situated between Mm -hmm. engineering and marketing. How does that work for you as an introvert? How do you approach your work? What do you find to be strengths? What do you find to be challenges? What I default to in terms of strengths is always my knowledge around content and um, obviously to some degree my product level uh, knowledge that I have gained over the years. My challenge still remains in terms of going out there, being, you know, sort of the go-getter or someone who's going to be absolutely comfortable starting a conversation with, with a complete stranger those are some of the things that still pose to be a bit of a challenge for me. I am thrown in those situations and I have to tell myself that I just have to do it. <laughs> That's the only way over the years I've been able to overcome my inhibitions or shyness, if you will, by just constantly telling myself over and over again is that I know my subject. I know this best. And my job here is to really rely on my own knowledge, my own experience, and make sure that the points I make 
how I contribute to a discussion is really about me talking through my own expertise, not feeling that, not thinking about the fact that I know less than XYZ or this person knows more than me. That's always going to be the case. Someone out there is going to obviously know more than you, but it's been, there have been, it's been a series of several incidents where a lot of self-assurance comes into play, has come into play. There have been instances where I have often relied on my own friends and my own colleagues' confidence in me that, hey, you got this, you know how to do this. And, and that has helped immensely. So it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. But you, at the end of the day, you got to want it. You have to want it. And, and I did, I always knew that I wanted to reach a certain point in my career. I wanted, I have had aspirations. I still have aspirations. And uh, it became very clear to me quite early on that I'd have to get past my own bubble, if you will, get out of it and learn to be more forthcoming and talkative, engaging. Those are the things that are that don't come uh, inherently to me. Right. So I'm hearing, you know, three different things, really that have helped you along this one of this is knowing your subject matter really really well mm-hmm. so that you are comfortable and you and you can rely on that expertise the other thing i heard out of that was having people express confidence in you that you've got that i think it's the way you phrased it correct i think that part is really really important and the third thing you mentioned really was it takes time. For me, I'll look back at it as a series of small successes, mainly, but of course, there are failures at times, too. <laughs> but definitely a series of things I can look back on that are kind of in some ways markers or I had a friend refer to them as tokens, in a sense mm-hmm. that you could look back as achievements that help you realize that, yes, you Yes, you actually should be in this space. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah. It's also actually what surprises me is that I always knew that I never had stage fright. You put me up in front of people and I have to present. That was never an issue with me. But at the same time, if if I was to go in for a get together where I probably knew five out of 10 people, even that would be a challenge for me to be at. So it was getting to those self-realizations and getting to understand yourself like, okay, I'm perfectly comfortable if I'm put in front of a room full of strangers and I have no issue with that. But on the contrary, when I have to be in a in a get together where I probably know 50% of the people there's that whole I don't know if I want to go or I'm too busy you know all of those excuses start kicking in yeah that sounds like me quite a bit (laughs) as well because typically I don't want to go right but that doesn't mean there's always an option around it exactly and 
that's kind of where I picked up. I'm like, okay, as long as I am talking about things that I, I know of and I have fairly decent knowledge and experience in, I can make conversation. I can talk about those things. And so, you know, you get into that point get to that point where you're like, let's play it by ear and see how it goes. It might not be that bad. And slowly but surely, you know, you you start getting comfortable in those settings as well. And like I said, it takes time. And if I was to tell you how many years it took me, I I would say it took me about seven, eight years to sort of be who I am today from from what I used to be. Oh, awesome. Thank you for joining us today on Hope for the Introvert. We hope you feel inspired and encouraged by today's discussion. You can find out more about introverted leadership and this podcast at hopefortheintrovert.com. And if you have any questions or comments on what you've heard, Ben would love to hear from you. Contact him at ben at hopefortheintrovert.com or on Twitter at hopeintrovert. And join us next time. Support Hope for the Introvert on Patreon. You'll love the rewards. From a discount on merchandise to joining the online community of introverted leaders like you, there's something for everyone. You could even join Ben as a guest on the podcast. We appreciate your support. You can find us at patreon.com slash hope for the introvert.